I love philosophy and military history. They really go together. And uh, we've talked about this before, but it's so fascinating. Um, before World War II starts, there's a reason why fascists and progressives loved airplanes and tanks. And uh, it's, inter it's interesting, so bear with me for a minute. Uh, let me take you back to days of Plato, okay? Interesting. Yeah, I'll take you back to days of Plato, and Plato said there's really two worlds. There's the world we live in here, and there's a world above us, superior. And so let me give you an example of this. Now, before you said world above us, that, is that considered was that heaven to them, or like the well, gods, or what did that mean? Well, Christians would call it heaven, he called it a world of forms. And forms. let me give you an example of practi practically what it means. How, how, let me show you about your platonic side. You ever had a hamburger, and you eat it, and you're like, oh, that's so good, it's almost perfect. But it's not perfect, it's, it's almost there. See, Plato would say there's actually, in this world of forms above us, that there is an actual concrete hamburger. It's floating. It's actual mere perfection. And what you're having is a shadowy reflection of it with imperfections. So take this idea that there's a superior realm with superior knowledge, and down here we're, we're distracted by the, the imperfections. The fascists would say, you know what? That's true of mankind. You see, most people to the fascists were, were dumb. They're the masses. They're interested in these things around. They're not interested in what really matters. And who knows what really matters? Who has that eye into heaven to the other world? It's the leader. It's the, the, the superior mind. So if you take this idea that we have to rely on the one or the few to guide us, you know, uh, unwashed masses, you take this idea that uh, we have to rely on the few. And by the way, the few, these are the people who make the tanks, the technology, all the things that make ah, the world progress. I see the connection. If you take all those things together, why after World War I are we fighting with all these masses and millions of men and their armies, all these horrible casualties? They say that's dumb. That's about the masses, democracy. Uh, these are just the general public fighting these battles. We need the elites. So, Fascists, uh, the progressive of the time, love technology. Why? Because it represents the few, and the few mm -hmm. will always overcome the many. And there's one more thing to add on to this. Uh, crowd control, psychology, became a real important element uh, during the early 20th century. And if you've ever seen some of these westerns, you know, you got the, the town folk come and they want to uh, hang the, the local criminal, the sheriff comes out, and it's a big mob, but the sheriff's like, Joe Smith, what the hell are you doing? Get back home. Does your wife know you're here? Joe Smith's been identified as no longer a bland mob. Mm. And now the mob's like, oh my God, we've been discovered. Our identity as a rabble has been compromised, so they leave. So if you take the idea of having a few with the latest technology and focusing on uh, creating ripple effects, psychological ripple effects. Do you find that then in great leader, military leaders of the past? Can you draw very specific connections to certain top-level generals that have been, you know, credited with winning wars and battles and related back to that kind of personality? Oh, uh, yeah, you know, if there's a famous battle, Alexander the Great, uh, when he fought at Galgamela, and that's 40,000 Macedonians versus 250,000 Persians. And, you know, how do you fight an army like that? And he's on, and he's on their territory, you know, uh, he's on the enemy territory, and he goes right for the king. He literally goes for the king with his cavalry, almost kills the king, but the king Darius turns and runs, and what happens to that, that force of his, that force of slaves, of conscripts? Their leader left, so they're routed, and Alexander wins. So you can take this idea of hitting the nerve center, but you do it, uh, hitting the nerve center, uh, having the, uh, the elite troops, uh, going around and circling your foes, all these are fascinating to me because uh, it connects philosophy, mindsets, behaviors, all of it. 
What are some key lessons like of big wars we've had? We could maybe touch on Afghanistan a little bit, but prior to that, even I know you've studied a lot of civil war, then moving into Vietnam. Have there been some key lessons you think we as a country maybe have learned or certain military leaders have learned? So the American Revolution, I think there's two reasons why we won the American Re Revolution. One is the fact that the British were inept. It was really their war to win. And at the very beginning, uh, uh, was it General Howe and Gage, uh, they actually had a great strategy and they didn't work together and they allowed the Americans uh, to live on. The other factor was George Washington. George Washington lost more battles than he won as a general, but he was a moral force and it was really his leadership played a strategic, strategic role uh, in success. So that's the American Revolution. I'll give you one more, the Civil War. Civil War is a fascinating war. It's, it's one that there's thousands and thousands of books written on, but I don't think a lot of people know it. You know, Lincoln, by the Union Fighting Confederacy, Lincoln, you know, I think Lincoln fired up to 11 generals by the time he got to Grant because they weren't performing. And what you find is that uh, some of the best generals in the Civil War were killers, absolute killers. Grant was called a murderer, called a butcher by Lincoln's wife. The fact was he saw, the, he saw an army as an instrument. We're here to kill the enemy, and we're gonna, you know, you're, you're a sword, and we're gonna use you. You might get chipped on the way, we might knock some pieces off, we're going to use it. And it was the generals like Lee, Grant, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is a, just an odious character, but, but here's a guy who uh, went from a private to a three-star general, ultimately started the Ku Klux Klan, and he was considered probably the greatest general of the Civil War by Sherman, even by Grant. So uh, there's so many characters, but the fact is some of the best generals of the war, especially Sherman, they treated the army, the military, as what it should be. It's a force for killing people and breaking things. It's not, no. a, it's not a social work That's true. Uh, organization. They weren't there to build roads. And maybe even back, yeah, well, nation building, build, maybe even back then, just because the lack of technology, it was more, I don't want to say it's more brutal than today's wars, but it, we fought differently, strategy, tactics on the ground level, kind of like two, uh, you know, uh, armies on a battlefield, forward march, let's go kill each other. You had to have that killer mentality at every level in you to succeed. Yeah, you did. In fact, uh, you mentioned the brutality of it. Uh, if, if you've seen those lines of soldiers, people shoulder to shoulder, that really goes back to the days of Napoleon. And the reason why is the, the weapons they used, the muskets, uh, they might be effective up to 100 to 200 meters, that's it. But by the time, the end, what you had to do is you had to mass people so you can mass your rounds into the enemy to create huge damage. But by the time the American, the Civil, American Civil War happens, you have rifled, you have rifled, uh, they actually have rifled muskets. And instead of 200 meters, they effective up to 500. So they would mass their men and try to fight the ways, the ways Napoleon did, and they would just get bloody mass. that was kind of the SOP at the time, that's what they knew from- Well, that's what they knew, and that's what they knew. In fact, a, a lot of, uh, it's been said that American generals had a copy of Jomini. Jomini was a, a, uh, a French military philosopher, and he really wrote the playbook, but he's one who was really describing Napoleon. So, there, yeah. And one more thing about the Civil War, which is fascinating, up to like, uh, I think even past Gettysburg, a lot of the strategic objectives were physical. We have to capture this town, we gotta capture this river, we have to capture this, this physical, tangible thing. Bridge. Right, but when Grant comes in, they realize the war is just sl slogging on, slogging on. The, the, the targets became more mental, spiritual. We have to break the will of the people. 
It's no more physical things break their will. So that's why when Sherman goes deal. through Georgia and marches through Georgia in you know, uh, the march to the sea, he causes irreparable damage, not really to the military, but to the civilian population, to the infrastructure, the very things which are making the war, uh, making the war resources, contributing to the war effort. And what happens is if you're a Confederate and you're fighting and you know your home and farm is being burned in Georgia, are you going to stay in the ranks? Are you going to go home and help save your family? You talk about break the will. I mean, just look at Afghanistan and what we just ended, the will of the Taliban to, I mean, give credit what credit's due. God bless, they had some will for that, that, that fighting power to, to wait us out, to wait the Soviets out to do. I mean, that's, that's, that's some will. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And you would think, uh, you would think uh, a lot of our generals would have uh, known this, reading, <laughs> reading history, because, the, uh, uh, you know, it's funny. When you look at bin Laden, Osama bin Laden, a lot of people think his military goal, or his goal was military, is to destroy the United States. Well, that's not true. It was to damage the U.S. as much as he could. And think about what happened to the, to the Soviet Union. He helped bankrupt the Soviet Union. As crazy as this is going to sound, and I've never studied bin Laden in depth, I was listening to one of your podcasts, which we're actually going to get into here in a little bit, and this just came into my head. I think you interviewed, and I'm going to, a guy by the name of David... Michael Shoyer. Oh, Michael. I'm sorry. Michael. And he was what the the CIA uh, state not station chief, but in charge of the Bin Laden mission of finding Bin Laden. And I was hearing him speak on your podcast, and he he said is cr what many people don't understand. Bin Laden was actually very intelligent, a very strategic, not just some um, yes, okay, Islamic, uh, you know terrorist, but a very strategic, good thinker on how to wage war against his enemies. Absolutely he was. I mean, he was, I mean, he's one of the better strategists that we've, we've seen, I mean, in the 20th century. Because what he was able to do was to take all these disparate groups, these Islamic or Muslim groups who were usually fighting one another, and say, hey, guess what? We have a common enemy. And that part, that United States, because they're on the Arabian Peninsula. And by the way, these are these are like the list of uh, his uh, complaints against against the United States when he declared war. He was able to unite this disparate group based on our foreign policy. Right. And that's what he. That's what he goes into. Yeah. Very and, interesting. And one of the things that Scheuer did, which I was just so fascinated with, was in 2001. If you were to look at a map, where's Al Qaeda? Well, they're in Afghanistan. Look at it last year. How many dozens of countries are there in? Mm. And this goes back to this goes back to military philosophy. Clausewitz, the great Prussian philosopher, made this point: the longer you fight a war without decisive victory, the stronger your enemy becomes in the end. Without dis as in deciding, defining what winning means. That means you know you win, and your enemy says you've won. It takes two. So. Now let's talk about your podcast again. I think it was the same one. And he said where if you're going to fight, he, he took Afghanistan as an example. And he's like, if you're going to fight Afghanistan, you have to go in there and just murder. You got, you got to just take everything out and have them. I, I forget his exact words, but he kind of led that analogy of where you can't do nation building and these three other missions at the same time. You got to go in and just annihilate the bad guys and actually just cripple them. Yeah. Uh, in fact, this, this even goes back to Clausewitz. Clausewitz made this point that if you, if you attack a civilized developed nation, where, That's what it was. Where's, the, where's all the activity? Where's the hub? It's their capital. 
But that's not Afghanistan. It's a collection of warring tribes. And, and Klaus even made a point, if you attack an uncivilized, undeveloped nation, you don't go for the capital. It's worthless. It's just a name. You go for the tribes. And what Shore was talking about, and it wasn't really his idea, he read history. He had read the British attempts and the, the wars in Afghanistan. And he said, you, we should have had a punitive expedition. That's and, what it was. And it's shocking, you know, uh, why we didn't have more voices to say, we need a punitive expedition. You send your forces in there for 12 to 16 months, you kill who needs to be killed, you destroy what needs to be destroyed, and you leave. And if in a couple of years, if they come back up, you do it again. But you don't spend how many? 20, trill years. 20 years, trillions of dollars becoming more weaker. Uh, I mean, think about the TSA, all these, the Homeland Security, all these things which are elements of the war have created a, a uh, I mean, a surveillance state. All the things which uh, long wars do, it, it really deteriorates us from inside. And now it's changed our country. And 9-11 is, like you said, TSA wasn't around prior to 9-11. No, Homeland wasn't. I mean, and, and, I mean, I don't know my main thing with the TSA. Man, I'll go to five different airports. And they'll be, there's no, it's almost like there's no standard. They'll, they'll catch my toothpaste at this airport. I'll go to that port. Anyways, that's a, that's a, <laughs> there's no standard. But do you think the generals of Afghanistan, so we were talking once and you mentioned that the Soviets publish this kind of AOR, uh, AOR, AAR of lessons learned, what happened. I mean, do you think our generals and our leadership really understood what they were getting into there? No. Oh, no. I mean, in fact, uh, I, know, I know Shoyer even, even asked uh, uh, some, some of these uh, officers. No. In fact, Shoyer, if I remember correctly, listening to other podcasts, he, is, uh, he was actually training, helped train some of these colonels and even uh, brief some of these generals prior to the invasion. No. And I, there's a real arrogance to that. And I think is when the, end of the, when the Cold War ended, there's only one big kid on the block. It's the United States. It's one world power. Therefore, we're, I think a lot of people feel that we can dictate uh, the situation. We can treat the world as if it's a Cold War. Uh, I mean, think about it. During the Cold War, if you're a foreign nation, uh, let's say like Pakistan or Afghanistan, you have two options. You want the American army in there or you want the Red Army in there. Mm. And so nations would do our bidding in a sense of uh, their... Uh, I'm trying to think what's the right word. They would necessarily do our bidding because it was in their interest. But when that, when the other big kid in the block fell, the, the Soviet Union, things changed. The world changes. It almost goes back to a pre-World War I time. But I think when you ride the top so high, uh, I don't think you have that mindset. You become intellectually lazy. You think, well, if we say X is going to happen, who's going to stop us? Of course it's going to happen. Wow. What kind of sum up this military conversation, any kind of parallels between Afghanistan and Vietnam you can pull from? You know, the one thing that I can think of is uh, Vietnam, one, I mean, there are many reasons why when Vietnam, especially at a strategic level, but the United States Army was a Western, was, uh, it was an army made to fight the, on the battlefields of Germany. Mm -hmm. And you gotta remember this about Vietnam, who was the main enemy? It's the Soviet Union. Because we're still fighting the Cold War, the Cold War. we're fighting it on this they periphery. Backing, yeah, and sure. when you think about um, when you think about Afghanistan, again, I, I don't know a lot about Afghanistan. I, I know people who who uh, have fought there, and I've read about it. But I just still think to this day, we still treat thing. We treat. We try to make reality what we wanted it, what we want it to be, as opposed to adjusting to the environment. That's why I think you have. A lot of our war fighting today is not conventional forces. It's all special ops and intelligence it's very, community. It's very unconventional. Well, it is. And what happens is you don't win wars that way. 
I mean, those elements are incredibly important. They're very, very, very important. But the Romans knew it. If you're going to win a war, you have to have infantry on the ground, and your enemy has to know we, we surrender. 